0: Exodus chapter 23. If you want to join me there, we'll pick up where we left off last time. In these last few chapters together, we have been watching the Lord really from Exodus chapter 20, kind of giving uh, an expansion now of the Ten Commandments and kind of how that would apply to everyday practical experiences, kind of the amplified version of those things, and laws concerning violence, and if there was uh, robbery in the society, if there were uh, different civil offenses, and how they were to regulate those things among the judges to make their decisions and so forth. And God's basically just been giving now miscellaneous uh, civil laws for the nation of Israel, how they were to conduct themselves in society. And as we come now to this part of chapter 23 uh, where we left off last time we left off there in verse 13 in chapter 23 where the Lord said in all that I have said to you be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods Uh, nor let them be heard from your mouth. So uh, again here, God reminding them in regards to all these different little uh, minute details and so forth that uh, as they had these things in front of them, God says here to, to be circumspect with those things. And again, the idea there of being circumspect just means to be careful. Uh, to be cautious, to pay close attention to. Uh, that's the idea there, Paul says in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to walk circumspectly, not as fools, uh, but as wise, he says, uh, understanding what the will of the Lord is, redeeming the time, and the idea again is like, a uh, it's akrabos in the Greek there in the New Testament where we find it, the idea is like when you walk a tightrope, you you can't be casual, you you can't disregard every step is important, and, and God here just telling us in regards to having his word and his instructions as he gave to them the law, he said, look, I didn't just give these things to you um, for them to just be intellectual information that you would kind of give assent to but that you would never then apply and actually just uh, implement those things in your lives and I think one of the greatest casualties uh, that exists uh, with the word of God and the freedom the possession that we have of it. Uh, is uh, many people, the Word of God becomes for them nothing more than just an intellectual exercise. They may be able to quote Bible verses or talk about theological truths or state spiritual facts, but uh, God's given us His Word to live by, not just to learn it uh, as information. And probably one of the greatest tragedies is when we do learn it and then we don't live by it. Uh, The the study that I was just uh, teaching last night on Tuesday evening as i I teach a Bible study for a group of surfers and it came up in the conversation talking about different translations of the Bible after the study. And, and I kind of just summarized some of my thoughts by just kind of saying, look, here's the most important thing. Find a credible translation and then read it and live by it. I don't care if you're NIV positive, you're New King James, New American Standard, whatever. You know, there are certainly a couple of good, credible translations of the Word of God. There are others what... Uh, that are out there that i, I certainly wouldn't suggest uh, but there are some good credible translations that god has provided to us but the most important thing i just was kind of trying to say at the end of the day to just bring it to a bottom line is look find one and then read it and live by it i don't care which one you're reading but read it and live by it that's what's important you know, i just had a conversation with someone recently as well who's you know, a very close friend of mine and and just really on the the, the border of, of potentially going all in for Jesus and had just uh, encountered someone recently who, you know, a pastoral uh, figure and kind of just blatantly said in, in a job interview, Well, you know, look, I, I don't mind cursing and drinking and living one way when I'm with certain groups of people. And if that's what I need to do vocationally, I'll do that. And then when it's, you know, when it's Sunday morning and I need to do the pastor thing, then, you know, I can switch gears and, and, and I can, I can kind of play the other role. And what tremendous poor advertising that is for God, uh, not only as a Christian that we would do something like that, but someone who would espouse the word of God and would want to explain God's word but not live God's word and not take it seriously and take heed to it. And here God is—he's giving all these different little uh, laws and instructions to the people of God. And some of it, again, we've looked at it. You know, there's some tedious things in here. Some of the things God's saying, but God didn't write those things to just be space filler. Those things mattered to the heart of God. They they pertain to what's in the heart of God, what matters to Him, and what would be best for the people of God, that they would live that way so that they would experience God's best among the congregation of Israel. So here, God, sort of in the middle of this, right as he's wrapping up toward the end of the story, just says, look, and all that I've said to you, be circumspect, Uh, be cautious with it, be careful with it, pay attention to it, God's saying, you know, take heed to it in your life and make no mention of the name of other gods. Don't allow your allegiance to be elsewhere in any way whereby your heart would be swayed from the very clear instruction of the way that god has told us to live our lives so god just cautioning his people as they were in a very polytheistic environment there were all types of gods among the different canaanite people groups and so forth so god has to tell them listen be careful he's going to constantly warn them don't let there be divided loyalty in your heart don't give your allegiance elsewhere uh, and again, in a society that we live in, even today in the United States of America, that just loves uh, tolerance and plurality. I mean, the, the idea of just full-hearted allegiance uh, to one truth and to one God, I mean, that, that's just foreign uh, in today's culture, in the day and age in which we live in. And and yet, exclusivity in our allegiance to God is what he wants. I mean Jesus was very narrow-minded. He said, uh, "I am the way, the truth and the life." He didn't say it uh, didn't say I am a way. He didn't say I'm I'm one truth or I'm 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 one of the better truths. He said exclusively the way and there's definite articles, the way, the truth, the life. The only way, the only truth the only life and god wants our exclusive allegiance that's that's what he wants and quite honestly i can tell you this i don't think i'd really rather have that any other way uh, it's a love relationship i you know i want exclusive devotion from my wife i don't want her saying well i mean that's that's kind of strict just you i mean, only you that's it for the rest of my life I mean, we want exclusivity in our human relationships. Why would it be odd that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who put breath in our lungs and keeps our heart beating, says, I want your exclusive allegiance. I want you to live according to my ways. I want you to be devoted to me. And I don't even want the name of any other uh, idolatrous thing or commitment to be upon your lips. Again, God wants that allegiance from us. So uh, verse 14, he he carries on now. And now he begins to give some instructions regarding... What we often call the feasts in Israel, the religious observances, the religious holidays that God would have them to celebrate. He says, verse 14, three times a year, you shall keep a feast. Notice to me. It wasn't just a feast to celebrate. uh, It was a feast to the Lord. And interesting. In Israel, there were basically seven annual feasts. We'll see these more as we move our way further through the Old Testament. There were seven feasts annually, But there were three feasts that were mandatory of those seven, as we'll see in the next few verses, where it was required that at least the head of household, any Jewish male, 13 years old or older, uh, once they were a son of the law or bar mitzvah, uh, they were required, it was mandatory that they observe those three particular feasts. But there were seven annually that God gave to them, which I I like that. It shows me that the heart of God is is into times of just rest and refreshment and reflection because all of these uh, feasts were basically religious holidays where they would give allegiance to God. They would focus upon the Lord and remember things about God as they would celebrate together as as, as families. Verse 15, he mentions these three particular feasts that, as I said, are mandatory of the seven given. He says, verse 15, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, which is another term for the feast of Passover. We often call it more frequently. And the feast of Passover typically happened around the march april time frame in the spring and remember those two are often put together in terminology passover and the feast of unleavened bread because uh, it's in connection to remembering what god did when he delivered them out of egypt and remember the death angel passed over them so they would first uh, in a sense, uh, celebrate uh, the, the Passover experience on Passover, the Passover day, and it tells them that they were to do that on the 14th day of the month, and then after that they then would begin the week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So he says to them, You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib in the Jewish calendar, for... He says, in it, you came out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty. Again, the idea there, none shall appear before me empty is that when they went to these feasts, they were to bring the required sacrifices that God expected of them. They were to not come up empty handed. When they went to worship the Lord, they were to bring the required sacrifice for the Passover lamb and for these other sacrifices that God would institute. Verse 16, he mentions the second of the three mandatory feasts three times a year, and that is the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. And the Feast of Harvest or First Fruits is often referred to as Pentecost. And typically, the Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost or First Fruits, would then happen 50 days uh, after the Passover celebration. So typically that would then fall somewhere in the summer range, kind of on our calendar the way we know it. And then thirdly, the Feast of Ingathering, which we know more commonly as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, and that was at the end of the year. Typically that happened around the early uh, to mid-autumn time frame, usually like around September, October, uh, when you have gathered the fruit of your labors from the field so you have these three of the seven feasts that existed you have these three mandatory feasts that it's important to remember that all jewish males were required these were mandatory the feast of passover the feast of pentecost and the feast of tabernacles uh, and i think it's interesting because when you look at the three feasts too uh, they're kind of staggered in a way where guy by god provided periodic times throughout the year of just reflection and worship. Uh, The Feast of Passover happened in the spring. The Feast of Pentecost happened in the summer. The Feast of Tabernacles happened in the fall. So you kind of have there almost quarterly or 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 at least three times a year, God was saying, I want you to stop and pause and I want you to just celebrate. And for an entire week they would cease from their labors. No one would work. They would if the whole family went, they would travel up to Jerusalem. That was a, a great way to you know pilgrimage and celebrate together and there would just be celebration and they were times of reflection and they were moments whereby God's people through going through the motions of the feast celebrations would basically rehearse God's involvement in their lives in real Uh, specific ways throughout Israel's history. As they celebrated Passover, uh, they would go through all of the activities of Passover and basically it was a visual uh, lesson as they observed the feast to help them reflect upon what God did for them. So as they'd go through the Passover celebration, uh, the children were learning lessons. Well, why do we do this? And well, the reason why we do this and God again being a master teacher Keep in mind, in that day, unlike the blessed privilege of you and I who are sitting here this evening, uh, they didn't all have copies of Scripture. Uh, there were scrolls in the uh, synagogues, many times the priests would have copies of the Old Testament scriptures, but for an everyday person who just was a follower of God, a, a Jew in among the congregation at large of Israel, they didn't have copies of scripture. So when they would celebrate these feasts, these were teaching opportunities whereby God being a master teacher, just again like we see Jesus, you notice how when Jesus taught, he always taught in a way whereby he would talk about things in nature or agriculture and he was an incredible communicator he just had an ability to help people connect dots and be able to picture things visually well as they celebrated these feasts they were visual lessons to help them reflect the times when God intervened in key moments in their history historically and did incredible things for them the feast of tabernacles was a time where they lived outside remember in booths and they would set up little lean-tos or huts, and they would literally stay outside. It was kind of like camping for a week. And as they lived outside in these little lean-to shelters, temporary huts that they would make, it created opportunities where the kids would say, "You know, Dad, can I? Ask, why are we living outside?" under the star why, why are we doing this uh, and sleeping outside this isn't quite as comfortable as you know and, and and it gave an occasion for the fathers then to communicate well the reason we do this is because for 40 years we wandered in our fathers wandered in the wilderness and for 40 years living under the stars god preserved us And our shoes never wore out, and our clothes never wore out, and God kept us in the midst of the wilderness wanderings as we lived out in the open wilderness. And again, it was an opportunity to rehearse and to explain. So holidays weren't just for fun and food and celebration, though they were. Holidays for the people of Israel were also opportunities to convey spiritual truth. And I think as we, especially as Christians... Who understand the value of things like Christmas and we celebrate Easter, or the resurrection of Christ. I mean, we should capitalize on the opportunity of when we celebrate holidays and these occasions to use them as, uh, Pivotal moments to be able to communicate truth to those that were assembling with and gathering with. And that was the case here. And when you read, we'll see further when we get into the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, it'll give more in depth description about some of these feasts. But nonetheless, here you have these three feasts that were given three times a year. They were to keep these feasts. And verse 17 says, Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the lord god uh, again it was something that god asked of them god mandated in, notice specifically for the males again indicating again what the heart of god that the heart of god is that the the male would rise up to be the spiritual leader among the family That even if the family couldn't journey there, God said, okay, but nonetheless, the head of that household, the males, I expect them to observe these feasts. And again, why? Because God required more of them spiritually to be able to convey spiritual truths to their families. So God wanted to keep them on target. Three times a year, God said, you cease from your labors and you come and you celebrate the feast of Passover. You remember what God did for you. You celebrate the feast of Pentecost. You celebrate the feast of tabernacles and remember who God is and what he's done. And they were revived spiritually and they were refocused spiritually. And, and this was essential because then they could better lead in spiritual things for their families and for their households. And I, I can't help but to notice Just how God is already implementing this principle of how important that was among the family lives of God's people in the congregation of Israel. And again, I just want to encourage you gentlemen who are in earshot tonight. Listen, when there are occasions for us as men to seek the Lord, it's important that you be there. And I tell you what typically happens, and I can say this with credibility because, you know, prior to the, you know, few years I've been here, I had, you know, 13 plus years pastoring Calvary Chapel there in York. And it is very typical, (laughs) Don't matter whether it was there, whether it's here, I, I, I see the same thing relative no matter where I travel around to. Typically, when there are events available, be it retreats or, you know, women's events or men's events, it is amazing how you can't put out sign up sheets fast enough. For the ladies to sign up for things because of the hunger they have for oh a women's event a women's retreat or you you can't keep the sign up sheets coming quick enough where with men typically you have to pull teeth beg pry prod manipulate you know pay their wives to you know speak into their ear when they're sleeping and they go see God you know it's it's there's but let me just say there's something really backwards in that. And it makes me truly concerned because when I see the heart of God was, he didn't say the females had to go up three times a year. He said the males were required three times a year. Because God understands when you get a hold of the heart of a man in the things of God, things start to happen in a family. And when things start to happen spiritually in a the family, then things start to then happen among a congregation of God's people, and then things start to happen among a civilization in a culture as a whole. So, uh, again, I just encourage you look at the pattern God sets here. There's an incredible principle, and certainly something that we should embrace as men. And if you're a woman, this is a great way to pray for your husband that he would recognize his role and that he would take initiative to seek the Lord, to go and appear before the Lord in those times when uh, it's occasion to go and to seek Him in special ways. Verse 18, God says, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. So God giving instructions, not intermingling, again, leaven with the blood. Again, the blood was sacred. It was the life of the flesh was in the blood. We'll read more about this. But because of that, God asked there not be a commingling of leaven with the blood. We know leaven oftentimes is a representative from God's perspective of sin. So again, God not wanting these two intermingled. He's just giving some instructions for these offerings. Verse 19, the first of your first fruits, or the best, the idea is, of your land, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So, again, God asking for their best. We've seen this repeated. God doesn't want their leftovers, He doesn't want what little bone they can throw them afterwards. God says, I want your best. I want you to give me your best up front in your worship, in your devotion, that we would give our absolute best and first to the Lord. And then give our leftovers to everything else in our life and the other aspects of our lives. And then verse 19, we have this kind of peculiar statement that shows up here in the midst of this. And God says, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Just in case you were thinking about doing that. Uh, Now, for those of you who are familiar with Jewish culture, you understand that this here has become something that has become very very i'm going to use the term in a great hyper emphasized among the people in the jewish culture whereby this statement has become something that has taken on an entire dietary code and kosher restrictions and so forth for them that becomes a basis of much of the ways in which they manage uh, their dietary codes. Uh, historically, most commentators and scholars, of which I am not, you know, tell us that in that day, that more than likely this was a reference of God trying to deter, as all these other verses have been about, them from practicing and participating in what was a very well-known Canaanite fertility practice in that day whereby some of the canaanite people as a fertility practice to curry favor from the gods that would bless their fields would take uh, young goats and they would boil it in the mother's milk and then as it came to a boiling point would then pour out the milk and the blood mixture over their fields as a way to try and curry the reproductive blessing upon their field and to to try and get their fields to become more fertile so my point in that is basically to say this what god was addressing was an idolatry thing it it wasn't a dietary thing it was an idolatry thing it is in a rural context however for whatever reason and i can't speak to that it has been taken and made into quite an extensive a dietary thing whereby, you know, to this day still, you know, those who are very strict, orthodox and kosher Jews, they will not mix together, we know, what? Dairy and meat because of this very statement. Uh, And and they take it to levels that are, we have different kitchens, different utensils, and it is taken to a level where it becomes something that was in a statement about one thing has kind of been taken and just, you know, Hyperemphasized and taken to a place I think really where God never intended where it's become this very legalistic codified thing that dominates and controls the lives of people in a dietary way when God meant it in an idolatrous way when he was referring to the things and it's just a, a good reminder that you know we want to make sure that with God's word that we don't take a scripture and just make it become a basis because we can all be guilty of this Where we take a portion of God's word or a text from God's word and we build a whole theological codified system on how we live our life and what we do and what we don't do off of just what one text says. And we need to be careful of that. And, and because of this verse, to this day still, uh, much of this exists, as I said, where there's not the mixture of uh, in any way. You go to Israel, I was you know, there just a little over a year ago, and to this day still, you do not mix together. You know, meat and cheese and, and meat and dairy, you just do not mix the two. They are separate. When we were meeting at the synagogue, I don't know if you ever took notice, they have two different kitchens when we were meeting there for Wednesday night Bible study, if you've ever noticed, they have two different kitchens in that synagogue for this very reason. One, syna- one kitchen you could do this in, the other kitchen you can do this in. And, and it's all based off of many of these kind of things that have become strong convictions in the hearts of those who are Jewish and, and take these things uh, to that extent. Verse 20 then, God says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So God speaks now of this angelic escort, he says, this divine escort, the word angel there in the Hebrew literally is just a term that indicates a messenger, a divine messenger. And who is this angel? Uh, Well, as we read through this, I think, as well as many other commentators seem to believe, that this is probably another reference to what's often called the angel of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament. Now, we do have uh, representations of angels that show up on occasion, but then on occasion we do have these pictures of what often we call the angel of the Lord, which typically are what we believe to be pre-incarnate appearances, of the Lord Jesus Christ, theophanies, times when Jesus would show up and manifest himself prior to the time of his incarnation when he took on flesh and was born as a babe there in Bethlehem. And when you read some of the language here, it just seems to be that rather than just an angel, that this is actually a reference to the Lord himself, the divine messenger, escorting him. He says So God says, I'm gonna send an angel before you, notice, to keep you in the way, and to bring you into the place in which I have prepared. Look at the language, verse 21. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Now, no angel has the right, spiritually, to choose to pardon or forgive transgressions. Only Jesus has the right to do it. Only God can forgive sins. He says, for my name is in him. And that's interesting as well. Jesus literally is jehovah is salvation his name basically has the the name of yahweh or jehovah joshua my name jehovah is salvation so god says my name will be in him but if you indeed verse 22 obey his voice and then notice the change and do all that i speak then i will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. So, again, notice verse 22, the language there. God says, if you obey his voice and do all that I speak. Wait a minute. His voice, obey him, but do all that I speak. Sounds to me like there's a connection there among the Trinity. God saying, obey his voice. And do all that I speak. In other words, what I speak is also going to be what you're going to hear in his voice because you have the unity of the Father and the Son working cooperatively. But again, seeming to be that that's what we have a reference to here, this divine messenger. But how beautiful to see that as God sending them in... To the land that ultimately they'll take over their journey through the wilderness. They'll face different enemies in which he'll talk about and we'll see more of this as we go through. But how beautiful in verse 20 that the Lord says, my messenger, he's going to go before you. He's going to keep you in the way and bring you into the place that I have prepared. Man, how wonderful is it to know Just like God did that for them historically and we'll see that play itself out as they take their journeys further from Mount Sinai to know that God hasn't changed. And the same way today, there are places that the Lord has prepared for you where God is going to lead you. There are things on the horizon and down the road that God is going to direct you into and to know that God says to you in the same way as he cares for you, look, I'm going to go before you. And I'm gonna be with you and I'm gonna protect you, and he says, I'm gonna bring you to the place where I prepared for you. I love to know that God goes ahead of us and prepares a place before we ever get there. And it gives me tremendous consolation to know that he doesn't just say, Go, uh and, and I'll catch up with you shortly no jesus said to the disciples even when he sent them out he says go into all the world and preach the gospel make disciples of all nations and then he says to them all authority has been given to me And he says and i am with you i'll be with you always and how the lord goes with us in his presence and he helps us with our enemies he says your enemies will become my enemies i like that too that the lord says whoever bothers you is is bothering me remember jesus ultimately said to saul he said saul why do you persecute me? And, and and Jesus said that to him. Now Saul wasn't necessarily directly persecuting Jesus. What was he doing? He was going around breathing out threats and murders and arresting and persecuting and imprisoning and putting to death Christians. And Jesus says to him, What you're doing to my followers, you're doing to me. I take that personally. No, I, I can totally relate to that. It, it, what someone would do in any way, speaking or or physically to my wife or to my children, uh, that I take that personally. And it's the same thing as if you poked me in the eyeball. And how wonderful to know that the Lord is not only with you in his presence, but his protection and his preservation. And he says, your enemies, uh, they're my enemies. Uh, and I will take the role to deal with your enemies to help you and to protect you. As you go through those things and he says, and I will cut off and deal with your enemies in a way whereby they don't interfere and you're brought into what ultimately I intend for you. Verse 24, he then instructs, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow and completely break down their sacred pillars. Now this becomes incredibly important As they begin to take ultimately the different territories and the lands that God would lead them into. God tells them in a strong warning, listen, do not make allegiances whereby you will be prone to then make concessions and compromise spiritually he tells them when you go into those territories do not bow down to their gods do not bend the knee do not serve them do not get involved he says or do according to their works and think well I mean we're, we're in Canaanite country so when in Canaan act like a Canaanite right when in Rome act like the Romans God says no 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 that, that sounds wise but that's really spiritually stupid and, and, and I think a lot of times we have to be careful in our desire to want to be you know, relevant and relate to people that sometimes we take that to a, an extent whereby we think we need to uh, get involved from a moral perspective and, and do things that other people do according to their standards. Now listen, I understand. Paul said to the Jew, I became a Jew to win a Jew. And I think that's wise. Paul said, I become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. And, and to connect with people where they're at, I think that's wise and that's prudent. But never to the place whereby we make concessions and we start to make compromises and we're bowing the knee to things that we should not be bowing the knee to because we want acceptance or we want favor. Listen, I, I tell you this, I look at some of the friendships that I have. With unbelievers, that my my sole agenda—not that I don't like the individuals—my sole agenda is ultimately to to make a connection, to win them to Christ. Um, you know, relate, have a good time, fine. But at the end of the day, I still want them to see I'm distinctively different than they are. And the way I make decisions is distinctive, different, and and you may bow your knee to certain things, but I, I'm I'm going to hold the line in certain areas because I want them to see there's a distinctive difference. And at the end of the day, I know that God doesn't want me to be commingling myself with things that are going to pull me down spiritually. So God gives them some strong exhortation. He says, "Notice, completely break down their sacred pillars." And that sounds kind of destructive, but you know, sometimes that that radical tearing down of the pillars where they could have worshiped that's necessary to make sure that we don't engage in things sometimes uh there's what healthy separation looks like you know breaking down overthrowing their pillars so that you don't go and give allegiance to them verse 25 so you shall serve the lord your god notice he says to the people of israel and he will bless your bread and your water and i will take sickness away from the midst of you and no bear no one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land and i will fulfill the number of your days so god here gives in a sense a, a promise nationally to the people of Israel telling them that if they separate themselves from the people and again these are God's chosen people those who his plan is at work among them that they would be a witness to the nations and here God gives to them what I believe is a national promise I think we need to be careful to try and grab that and make it a personal promise and a guarantee for all of our lives God is in this, in, in a national way giving a promise to them that as they lived according to God's standards and God's ways that God would keep them healthy, that God would keep sicknesses and diseases from coming upon them that were inflicting the other civilizations around them, and that God would prolong their lives. And again, makes total sense to me. When you live God's way, you're, you're going to experience uh, health and benefit and blessing in your life. You know, God doesn't just give us His ways and standards to live in His Word generically just to keep us in restricted lifestyles. No god tells us how to live because it's healthy it's the right way to live a lot of the dietary codes god even gives to his people as we'll see in the old testament law a lot of those things were for their own health benefits to keep them from diseases and bacteria and things that would inflict in regards to the ways that they would eat or not eat so here, god just gives them a promise that he would bless them in their obedience and keep them healthy and and, and extend their lives. Verse 27, he also says, and I will send my fear before you and cause confusion among the people whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And again, when you get to places like uh, they're entering into uh, the area where they cross the Jordan and with Rahab the harlot when the spies go in and what does she say? She says, look, we've heard about your people and we've heard about your God and there's a dread over all the land because of you because as God was working among his people, People realized they weren't just facing the military of Israel. People realized they were facing the God of Israel. And that's what intimidated them. The fear and the dread was not, oh, these people are such incredible warriors. As they heard the stories of the miracles of God and what God would do for his people as he would bless them in the times when the odds were completely out of sync, and yet God would grant an incredible victory for them militarily, though they should have been overthrown and destroyed by their enemies people began to realize, look, we're not fighting against them. We're dealing with their God. And that caused, in a sense, a fear to come upon their enemies when their enemies typically should have been to overwhelm them. Verse 28, God even says to them, and I will send hornets, which are way worse than bees. Bees pollinate. The only thing I know hornets do is bite. (laughs) And they're they're nasty. He says, I'll send hornets before you. So again, God can even use nature. I love how God can use anything supernaturally in natural ways, God says, I'll send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. And interesting little tidbit here. Archaeologically, there have been uh, things discovered, references whereby ancient civilizations have described leaving territories because of incredible infestation. Uh, infestation. <laughs> infestations Infestations, there you go you can tell I didn't practice that word (laughs) or swarms maybe I should have picked that one of hornets coming into a territory whereby it became so bad that people actually uprooted and moved their territories so just again authenticating exactly what the word of God describes here and how you read this well come on God wouldn't really have done that well yeah God God controls creation God controls all of nature And if God wants to work in a way through nature to accomplish his purposes, he's more than competent and able to do that. And here God says, I'll use anything. I'll even send hornets, he says, to drive people out of their territories. Look at verse 29. God says, I will not drive them out from before you, though, in one year. Lest, here's why, God says, the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I have that underlined in my Bible, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. So notice as God drove out their enemies so that they could inherit the land, God says, I'm not going to do it all instantaneously. It's not going to happen quickly and overnight in one year's time. God says, because you wouldn't be ready to handle that. And if I did it too quickly, he says, the beasts of the field and the animals, he said, they would become too numerous and you would not be ready to handle what would come with that if I did the whole thing quickly. So God says, instead, gradually, little by little, I will drive your enemies out from you so that you are able to handle the territory as it comes to you. And I'll tell you, as I read that and how God graciously does that, I mean, could he have drive them out right away? Of course he could have. He just said in the prior verses, I'll send hornets and drive people out. I mean, God wasn't limited. He could have overnight, just instantaneously, drove everybody out. But God says, that's not the way that I work. God says, little by little, in small measures. Why? Because God deals with us gradually and graciously because he knows there's only so much that we can handle. Not only just would we not be able to handle certain things, but if God did everything overnight in our lives, you know what would happen? We would become such cantankerous, proud, little arrogant snots to think, "Wow, look at that. You know, <laughs> instant victory." And and we we would become like that. And God knows that in our lives spiritually, and that's why spiritually in our lives, you first get saved and kind of those big major things drop off. But you know, I've been walking with Jesus now since nineteen ninety two, and I tell you every day is still a battle. God's still identifying enemies in my life. And right away when you first get saved, it was like the big things kind of drop off. I don't know that's what it was like for me, you know, the cussing and the it's just the real obvious thing. God just starts tomahawking the real big things. But then all of a sudden, as time goes on, he, he just he starts to go deeper. And the things that aren't on the surface, he starts to deal with attitudes. And he starts to deal with motivations, and he says, "I want to talk about how you're using your time, my time. Was, yeah, I want to talk about how you're using your time. I want to look. I want to talk about how you're spending your money. I want to talk about how you make your decisions. I want to talk about why you make those decisions. What was the motivation behind why you made the decision? I, I, I want to. I want to talk to you about your thought life, and and why do you have that attitude and response?" When someone does that or someone says that, and 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 little by little, the Lord deals. He puts his finger on the next enemy in our life, and he says, "Okay, we're, it, we're now, now we're gonna we're gonna battle with this one for a little bit." And, and the wonderful thing is, He drives out our enemies, but He does it graciously and gradually. Because you know as well as I do, if the Lord would have come in for me on day one and we and He would have said, "Okay, I declare war against I, I woo." You must have just kill me. I I didn't realize because I, I got a lot of enemies I wrestle with. My flesh is pretty pretty rotten, and there's a lot of things in my life that are enemies to my relationship with God. And little by little, he just he just like peeling off the layer of an onion. He just goes to the next level and the next layer. But he just he knows just what we can handle. And little by little, graciously and gradually, he drives out one enemy at a time, and then he puts his finger on the next. He said, we, "We need to work with this now, Tony." And he just puts those enemies out of our lives. But just such gracious, patient, caring ways in which God deals with the enemies in our lives. So again, be patient with yourself. Can I remind you, the Bible says in Second Corinthians 3, it says that we are being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord. It does not say we've been transformed. Too many times Christians you know fall into condemnation and and self pity and struggle because they're frustrated that they're still wrestling with things. Listen, it says we're being transformed. Doesn't nobody's been transformed. We're being transformed and the Lord's driving little by little enemies out of our lives and it's a process. You know you know when that process will be done? When you're in heaven. And when you're in heaven experiencing everything of a a sinless body, then that process will be over. But by now, for now, the Lord, little by little, letting us inherit more and more of the things of God, dealing with our enemies. Verse 31, he says, And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, that is the Mediterranean, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive drive them out before you and you shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods they shall not dwell in your land notice god again reemphasizing lest they make you sin against me god knows that we can make no uh, you know we can make no no uh, concessions and no agreements with the things of the flesh And God says, if you are willing to make treaties to try and satiate those enemies and have peace with them, he says, what's going to happen is ultimately, if you serve their gods, he says, verse 33, it will surely be a snare to you. They'll just ensnare you ultimately. And we need to remember that in the same way that was true for them historically and literally, that if they let the presence of enemies dwell among them, then ultimately those enemies would tempt them to sin against God and would ensnare them to get reeled in slowly into their practices. The same is true of us. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that we're to make no provision for the flesh. Uh, the, you know, the flesh is something that you can't just toss the flesh a, a periodic uh, you know bone and say, if if I just satisfy it, then maybe it'll just be quelled and, and it'll kind of it'll calm down and it'll go away and leave me. No, it. All that does is it intensifies the desire. God has one command for the flesh. He says, crucify it. Be radical with it. Put it to death. Make no provision for it. Because if you give a small provision for it, it, like a little snowball, will just accrue momentum in your life and it will ultimately come around and ensnare you. Remember God, that's why God would tell them when they would go into territories, look, put to death people. Remember when uh, Saul was told to put to death the Amalekites and he didn't do that and he let King Agag the, the one king live and he made all types of you know, excuses of why he felt well I thought it would be okay and, and, he, and he basically just made justifications why it was okay to leave this one you know, this one little oh, I'm not, and he didn't fully command he didn't fully obey God's command because he felt like it was maybe a little too radical so severe why so severe I mean just cut off Everybody cut off everybody, and what happened? Ultimately, as he allowed that enemy to remain alive, years later, fast forward all the way to the time of Esther, when there was someone who named Haman wanted to exterminate the entire Jewish population, which would have then eliminated the messianic line, and it was a man named Haman who was a descendant of King Agag. And see, it's a fitting reminder that when there are areas in your life that God says to you, you need to cut this off, completely separate yourself from it, and and you think, oh, well, I mean, 90% of the way I will. Listen, if you leave a little opportunity, a little doorway there, eventually that is going to come back around and it's going to conquer you. It's going to ensnare you. It's going to cause you to sin against God. And it's going to be something that ultimately becomes your downfall. So as God told them to do this literally in the same way spiritually, often the same is very important for us. Well, let's take a brief look into chapter 24 here. It says, Now he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord your God, uh, to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu were the two eldest sons of Aaron and 70 elders of Israel. Those were probably the 70 that he delegated some authority to in the decision making process and worship from afar. And Moses alone, again, he has an exclusive Access to God at this time, Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So God at this point now calls Moses and a select group of the leadership to separate themselves from the congregation and to draw closer to the presence of God. I think there's a great reminder in that as God calls the leaders to at times separate themselves and draw closer to the presence of God, because if they were going to represent God, they better be in the presence of God. So that they understand more of who God is and that they can reflect and represent God accurately here. So God's calling now Moses and Aaron and his two sons, as well as 70 of the elders of Israel to come towards him. And it says the other leaders could worship from war. Moses was had special access at this point. Anyway, historically, he could come closer to the presence of God and I read this, worship from afar, verse 1. It says, verse 2, the, the people shall not go up with him. They shall not come near. Aren't you really glad that we're no longer under the law, but under grace? That now, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that Hebrews tells us we can all come boldly to the throne of grace. That there's a new and living way, Hebrews says, that has been opened up for us through the life and death of Jesus Christ on the cross, so that none of us have to worship from afar now, that we can all draw near with a full heart and assurance of faith and come directly close to the Lord. What a wonderful gift we have through what Jesus has done for us. But here, God's calling the leadership up into his presence, nearer to where he was. Moses was to draw closer. Verse 3, so Moses came and told the people, All the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Now that sounds optimistic and I'm sure there was good intention behind that. That should be our heart, but it doesn't ultimately... Unfold that that's literally what happened. In verse four, it says, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. So there's another reference we have contained internally in the word of God of, again, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch that we often refer to them as, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that Moses not only was receiving these things, but he actually was recording them as well, that he was documenting them, that he actually was writing down the words of the Lord and recording those things. And I think when we hear things from God, it's it's a good thing sometimes to write down those things we hear. In Moses' case, he was recording scripture. I wonder if he knew he was recording scripture, but he just was hearing from God and sensing he was to write these things down. Later, we'll be told that the reason that he was to write those things down was so that he could teach the people those things. In fact, fast forward over with me to verse 12 listen to what God says there the Lord said to Moses come up to me on the mountain and be there and I'll give you the tablets of stone and the law and commandments interesting here God says which I have written that's a reference to the ten commandments we talked about earlier in our prior study that actually contrary to how the movie represents it God is the one who gave those ten commandments who spoke them and recorded them but notice God says I've given these things to you that you may teach them Moses was to be familiar with them so that he could then communicate and articulate those truths to the people. So here Moses, we read at this point, is being instructed by God to record these things. He wrote them down. Chapter 24, verse 4, And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So at this point, the priestly system and the order of priests through Aaron's family line have not been established at this time yet. We won't get that for a few more chapters. So in an informal way, Moses here relies upon some of the young men. I like this. In kind of an informal way, they were the temporary uh, priestly servants, he employs these young men, he delegates to them the responsibility to go and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings unto the Lord in worship now we'll see more description of these offerings the burnt offering was an offering of consecration where the entire animal would be consumed upon the altar nothing was to be left remaining and it was a picture of of your life being fully consecrated to god lord i i want every part of my life to just be consumed in the things of you and, and in worship and i just consecrate Every part of my life. I don't want to hold anything back. That's what the burnt offering was. was an offering of consecration. The peace offering was a fellowship offering. Well, see, that was an offering where part of the animal or sacrifice was put on the altar and dedicated to God in the fire. And another part of it then was cooked and eaten. The idea was like you were having a meal with God. It was an offering of fellowship and spending time together with God. But But I love how in verse 5 here, again, this is an informal way, but I love how Moses grabs the young people he grabs the young men and he grabs the young men and he gives them involvement and he he puts them into the things of the lord and and what a great way to connect their hearts to the things of god as these sacrifices need to be made he doesn't just rely upon all those who are older he grabs some of the young men with energy again think these are these are sacrifices so i mean not to be uh, you know grotesque here but you're, you're hacking up animals okay so you're building altars the old fashioned way so these young men they got energy uh, they have the ability so he says look here's your job and we build this altar and you know uh, sacrifice these animals but i just love the idea here of again taking these young men including them in the worship of god as they make this offering to the lord and and verse six says to us here and we'll just have to look at this lightly and our time's almost up it says and moses took half of the blood put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar so they would again they would slit the throat of the animal in a typical uh, offering scenario they would slit the juggler area where the juggler vein would be and they would let the you know, the, the the pulsations of the heart pump out the, the blood of the animal and they would catch it in a basin is what's being done here. So they're gathering the blood here and they're going to use it to ratify the covenant of God between himself and his people. It says here, verse 7, that then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and again they said, affirming, all that the Lord says has said we will do and be obedient. Again, Good intentions. That should be our heart towards God's word when we hear it read, that we want to be obedient. That was their heart. And verse 8 says, And then Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So basically, what's happening here, it's the only time we find this happening historically. God is ratifying the mosaic covenant with his people all the laws that he has just given to them now they're recorded they're written down they gather some of the blood they use they they read the the words of the book of the covenant Half of the blood is poured out of the altar. Again, the blood being poured out is a picture of the life being poured out of the sacrifices. The Bible tells us you know, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So at the altar, the place of worship where sacrifice was made, life was poured out. But notice, as God ratifies, and it says actually verse 8, that it was the blood of the covenant. God ratifies the covenant by what? Blood. The blood of the covenant. Interesting. Take notice verse 8. Literally it says the other part of the blood that was kept back in the other basin literally Moses sprinkles the blood on the people. Imagine being at that worship service. Taking some of the blood and just imagine what the, but, it, but it was a very strong picture to them as they had blood splatter on them, you can imagine that the, the reality of those things really sunk home to the depths of their heart. Wow, an innocent animal, just it just died. Something just died. And, and to see life poured out and the reality of death being necessary to make atonement for sin as they would come to appreciate this and so that I could be right with God and and something else had to suffer on my behalf. And God was very graphically driving these homes and these ideas home into the hearts of the people. And, of course, we know ultimately uh, we have a much better covenant, the new covenant, that is based on the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. And Jesus says, a new covenant I make with you. And even as we celebrate communion, Jesus said, this, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sins. And In a sense, they had a covenant ratified in that day among God and Israel. And we have a New Testament covenant, a blood covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ that gives us a relationship that is based upon, as Hebrews 9 and 10 say, much better things, a new and living way, uh, which ultimately gives us the direct access by faith into God's presence. And it's interesting, we'll see next time, that directly after this blood covenant's made, the next thing you see is them in the presence of God. And I can't help but to think how again God's reminding us of how those two things, when, when there's the shedding of blood, then there's access and availability to the presence of God because without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins. And there needs to be that blood that's shed for us to be able to approach God.